had said that Elijah would come first before the Messiah. And again, they did not yet understand that there would be two comings for the Christ. And so they were trying to make sense of this all. Was their experience with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration the fulfillment of what the scribes were talking about? And they're probably wondering, okay, we've seen Elijah, and uh, he comes first. Uh, How does this work? You're talking about death. If this was Elijah coming to restore all things, how does that harmonize with the Messiah being killed? Oh, that, that doesn't seem to jive. Okay, uh, Elijah comes and gets everything in order, and then the Messiah is killed. What? That, that, that seems inconsistent. We, we're expecting Elijah to come and bring everything into line where the Messiah can then rule. It just didn't seem to fit. How does Elijah's restoration ministry harmonize with Jesus emphasizing he's, he's about to suffer and die? The parallel in Mark 9 suggests confusion over how Jesus' death relates to the restoration ministry of Elijah, which must come first. Parallel text, Mark chapter 9, they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. True. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That also is true. Uh, both are true. So the issue is how do, are we to understand this? Verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus affirmed that indeed on this point the scribes were right. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus here affirmed a yet future, literal coming of Elijah, which will come prior to the Messiah in his coming, and he will restore all things. Now, Jesus spoke of what the prophet Malachi prophesied at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, this is the very end of what we have in our Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah. It's kind of like as the Old Testament's closing out. What's, what's the thing we're hoping for, looking for on the horizon? Well, it's the coming of Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before... Note the word. Before... The coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, Elijah is referred to 29 times in the New Testament. He appeared with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we saw last week. Malachi predicted he would thunder onto the scene just prior to the coming of Christ and would bring about revival in Israel, which is the idea of of the restoration. Go to Acts chapter 3. They're awaiting the restoration where God brings things into line uh, in terms of Israel and brings about the kingdom. He would come on the scene and bring about revival in Israel as seen in the turning of the hearts. The experience on the Mount of Transfiguration is described by Jesus as a vision But it was not the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. This is yet future. The phrase, will restore all things, 
shows this is yet future. No restoration had been effected in Israel by the ministry of John the Baptist, or the kingdom would have come. That was the problem. John the Baptist called for repentance, but they didn't repent. There's always a small minority, but the nation at large did not repent. The leadership in the, in the nation did not repent, and therefore there was no restoration. Now, the idea that Elijah would come first was so strong in the national consciousness that some thought the ministry of Jesus was actually that of Elijah risen from the dead, as we saw back in chapter 16, verse 14. On the cross, when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some who stood at the cross thought he was calling for Elijah. They were definitely expecting Elijah. And they were expecting him to show up before the Messiah. And properly understood, that's true. When John the Baptist said he was not Elijah, that would seem to argue that Jesus, therefore, was not the Christ. Because before the Christ, Elijah must first come on the scene. So when John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah, he said, well, then you're not the Christ because the forerunner to the Christ must be Elijah. And the result was the religious leaders ended up claiming that John the Baptist had a demon. Matthew eleven eighteen, Because of his claim to be the forerunner to the Christ. Now the Jews to this very day are still waiting for Elijah to come. And they still do not think the true Messiah has come at all. And this is part of the reasoning. Elijah hasn't shown up yet. So it can't be the Christ. They're still waiting for this order of things to develop. First, Elijah must come on the scene. And then following that, the Messiah will come. So in Jewish thinking, Jesus can't be the true Christ. Because Elijah has yet to come and restore all things. He has to get things in order, and then the Messiah comes. And so they're still waiting. For about 2,500 years, the Jews have anticipated the literal return of Elijah as the forerunner to the Messiah. At the Passover meal, called the cedar, to this day they set an extra plate setting. And they have a special cup designated just for Elijah. The meal begins with prayer, and then a member of the family is asked to go to the door, open it, and see if Elijah the prophet has come. Now, in my weird sense of humor, this is just me, but I would love to dress up as an old man, you know, long beard, and stand at the door. (laughs) Just me. Anyway, they wait. Thus, the expectation of Elijah to come before the Messiah is constantly reinforced in, in Jewish culture. Even to this very day. Note on the picture. You see anything about this picture here? Well, note there's a plate here. There's nobody sitting there. It's for Elijah. And did you see this? Look at the other glasses. This is a special cup. Set for Elijah. He's coming. And he must come first. 
Well, when you put all the scriptures together, it's clear that John the Baptist was not Elijah. You see, there's no such thing as reincarnation. There are at least three reasons that argue persuasively that John the Baptist was not literally Elijah. Number one, the angel Gabriel announced to Zacharias that his son John the Baptist would go before the Lord, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah, as seen in Luke 1.17. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he would not literally be Elijah. Number two, after John the Baptist died, the Lord here in Matthew 17.11 announced that Elijah is coming. He didn't say, it's all done. No, he is coming first and will restore all things. That has yet to happen. Thus, Jesus interpreted Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet, literally, showing that this prophecy must yet be fulfilled literally in the person of Elijah. And number three, when the religious leaders of Israel confronted John the Baptist with a very direct question as to whether he was Elijah, his answer was an unequivocal no, as seen in John 1.21. The restoration ministry of Elijah is yet future. As Jesus affirmed, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. I want you to note the precision with which Malachi speaks, and actually all the prophets at every point. But here, note Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before what? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The 70th week of Daniel, commonly called the tribulation period, is broken up into two parts. At the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt Jewish temple and declare himself to be God. This is called the height of abomination in Daniel 9.27, which Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24.15. And Jesus said this will mark a transition to great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So this last half of the tribulation period is specifically called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It is the time of great tribulation. Note the double emphasis in Malachi 4 or 5, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, this is descriptive of the time of the great unparalleled time of tribulation. Elijah shows up before that time. In other words, Elijah will minister during the first half of the tribulation period. Let me show you what I mean on the overhead here. Seven-year tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel. Uh, the rapture happens first, my theology. If you want to argue, well, okay, another time. <laughs> But uh, Christ returns for his church in the rapture. It's the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. I think we're getting close. We're always getting closer. That's for sure. Uh, we're not setting any dates, but, uh, you know, you don't want to put it off until tomorrow. Uh, we don't know when he's coming, perhaps today. 
Then will come the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period. Three and a half years, you know, the Jews are going to have back their temple. They're going to be able to worship freely in their temple. Uh, things are going to, you know, not be as bad. But then the Antichrist, middle of the trip, goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. That's when Jesus said, run for your lives. This is going to be a very very hard time for the Jews. And this is called the Great Tribulation. The time of Great Tribulation is referred to by Christ in Matthew 24. This here, I believe, is what, when it says he comes before, Elijah comes on the scene before this Great Tribulation, this last three and a half years. So, uh, and then it concludes, of course, with Christ's second coming uh, to the earth to set up his kingdom, comes with the church at that point. Well, it is for this reason that many dispensational commentators in our camp believe Elijah is most probably one of the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. We read there in Revelation chapter 11, and I will give power, this is in the context of the tribulation period, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees... And the two lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. Think about Revelation. If you want to study Revelation, first study the first 65 books of the Bible before you get to the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation builds on all the previous Revelation and ties it all together in consummation. Well, where do we have the two olive trees and the two lampstands prophetically mentioned? Well, Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4 prophetically mentioned these two olive trees, also called the two lampstands, and the two anointed ones. Now, in Zechariah's time, it is thought that application is being made to Zerubbabel, the the governor uh, uh, of the kingly line of David, and Joshua, the high priest. So there's application there. But prophetically, the book of Revelation makes application of these two special witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The olive tree symbolism represents spirit-empowered witnesses. And the lampstands represent the light of their witness. Anointed ones in the Old Testament were special chosen representatives of God who were anointed with oil, representing a special empowerment by the Spirit. Now, in the context of describing these two special witnesses in Zechariah 4, we have the key verse of the chapter as seen in verse 6. Notice what it says there. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord by Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God will accomplish his purposes by his spirit, working through special chosen instruments. As applied to the two witnesses in Revelation 11, these will be the two most powerful witnesses on earth. And I mean to tell you, they come with power. Now, lots of discussion has revolved around who these two witnesses in Revelation 11 will be. Most agree that most probably one of them will be Elijah because of the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. As for the second witness, Enoch is often suggested as a candidate because neither Enoch nor Elijah died a normal death. I mean, they're the two great exceptions in the Old Testament. 
But note that the entire context of Revelation 11 is Jewish in orientation, having much to do with the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Enoch lived before the time of the flood, and hence long before the time of Israel. And he did not have a Jewish ministry at all. Because he existed before the time of Israel's existence. If one of the two witnesses is indeed Elijah, as most of us suspect, then what do we make of his bodily appearance after about 3,000 years of having been off the scene? And he's been gone for quite a while now. In Revelation 11, after three and a half years of ministry, the Antichrist will have both of these two witnesses killed. In Jerusalem, where their dead bodies will lie in the street for three and a half days. And the world will rejoice over them. You know, the world does not like witnesses pointing out their sin and their need to turn to the true living God of Israel. As revealed ultimately in the Messiah. The world does not appreciate this. So the world will rejoice over their death and will send gifts to one another, it says. Kind of like we do at Christmas, you know. Uh, Happy Dead Witnesses Day. Here's your gift. I mean, that's how the world's going to carry on. Now, the last anyone saw of Elijah, he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. But then, then what happened to him is he vanished out of sight. Does this mean he went bodily to the third heaven where God dwells? As many simplistically seem to think. You know, the Bible speaks of three heavens. The heaven where the birds fly, the heaven of outer space where the heavenly planets are found, and then the third heaven where God dwells in his intimate presence. Now, we should not assume that Elijah went bodily straight to the third heaven, as is often assumed. For starters, when the Old Testament saints departed from this life, They did not go to heaven as do New Testament saints. Sorry, they just didn't. They just didn't. They went to the paradise realm of departed spirits in the center of the earth called Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament. And Hades had two compartments. So we see in Luke 16, a paradise section for the saved and a torment section for the lost. You see, the Old Testament saints lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ. But they never really knew the full and total forgiveness that was actualized at the cross. They lived in what I call the shadow land, where nothing was yet complete and everything was still on hold. They lived in an era of barriers where, yes, they had a relationship with God, and yet nothing was made perfect under the law, as it says in Hebrews 7, 19. They were never able, under that old arrangement, to get very close to God. They never had absolute confirmation. There was always more sacrifices to be made, and things always remained incomplete. Into that void, my brothers and sisters, stepped Jesus to become the sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. 
including those committed prior to the cross. I mean, that is the center of history. They look forward, we look back, but in the cross is the forgiveness of all sin. Christ died for all sins. Now, Hebrews 9.15 indicates that something, something radical changed in conjunction with the Old Testament saints at the death of Christ. I want you to look at this verse very carefully. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, inaugurated a new covenant. Why? For the redemption, the purchase, the paying off of the, of the sin price, sin penalty, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He's talking about the Old Testament saints here in this verse. All the barriers of the Old Testament are now removed. Now the Old Testament saints have entered into the good of many aspects of this eternal inheritance, which first and foremost involves unlimited access and intimate relationship with God. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 affirms this, because in heaven, along with the church of the firstborn, are now, quote, the spirits of just men made perfect, which we believe is a reference to the Old Testament saints. Under the law, nothing was perfect, including their destiny at the time of death. But now they have entered into the perfection provided by Christ at the cross. And in the resurrection, Christ transitioned all those Old Testament saints to heaven. Hebrews chapter 12. But this is all post-cross. This is all post-cross reality. When at the resurrection, Christ ascended on high and led captivity captive, meaning he unleashed all the new covenant blessings that are now the inheritance for God's people. But here's the point. Neither Elijah or Enoch knew these benefits. Not yet. The Old Testament saints were saved on credit. But they did not yet know the benefits of a new covenant relationship with God based on the blood of Christ. This may well, by the way, this may well explain the discussion that Moses and Elijah had with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. What were they discussing? So, well, they were having a good conversation. What were they talking about? Well, we're not left to wonder. Luke 9, 30, 31 says, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were thinking and talking in terms of Christ's decease. That is his death. And what he was going to accomplish on their behalf, as well as all believers. And we love it. We love to talk about what he's accomplished. This is everything to us. From their perspective, their full redemption was yet to be accomplished, which would be of great interest to them. And of course, this would ultimately include the reality of future glorification involving a glorified body. The implication is that neither Enoch nor Elijah had a glorified body at this point, which is necessary to live bodily in God's presence in the third heaven. This is a necessary deduction for two key reasons. Number one, 
John 3.13. Jesus speaking. No one has ascended to heaven. Who? No one. No one has ascended to heaven. Keep that in mind. I mean, if you're saying, well, yeah, no one except, you're going to have to change your verse a little bit. No one, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Jesus plainly said that no one up to that point at the time of his earthly ministry had ascended bodily into heaven. So I take it that neither Elijah nor Enoch actually went bodily to live in the third heaven with God. But there's an even more compelling reason to think this is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what we call the resurrection chapter, it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. The very first. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. He's talking about resurrection in a glorified body. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ is the first fruits of those who have a glorified body that is suited for glory. No one else preceded him in this, including Elijah and Enoch. So I take it that both Elijah and Enoch, neither of whom died a natural death, ended up in the paradise section of Hades, which is the realm of departed believers prior to the perfection of all things in Christ. Just like Samuel, in 1 Samuel 28, 15, Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration were supernaturally, visibly, brought up out of their resting place in the pre-Christ place of paradise. Now, time is no issue to God. You, you, you know, Lazarus died. After four days, it was not a pretty thing. He was already stinking, according to his sister, would be, with decomposition. But Christ restored him to physical life where he picked up just where he had left off. Imagine that. I'd like to have, what was it like? Do you remember anything? Maybe he didn't remember anything. Maybe he just wiped that, I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to him. But he picked up right where he left off. And later Lazarus had to die again a physical death. God is able to do this with Elijah even after 3,000 years of time. And he will. You say, well, I just don't think that's possible. How big is your God? You know, it's just not a hard thing for God to do this. Nothing is impossible with God. I read that somewhere. We'll get to it. Chapter 19. Elijah will, in the latter days, be brought back to physical life in his mortal body to serve as one of God's special chosen witnesses. Now, I'm not dogmatic about this, even though I sound like it, but I am firm in my own thinking that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 will probably be Moses and Elijah. And the key reason for this is not simply because they appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's an interesting footnote. But the key reason for this is because of the character of their ministries as described in Revelation 11, which mirrors the ministries they had in the Old Testament. You see, the first two types of judgments listed correspond to Elijah's, Elijah-like ministry and his miracles. In the Old Testament, Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy people. 
Anybody else do that? No. Uh, he prayed, causing it not to rain and causing drought. So what do we see from these two witnesses? Oh, here you go. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Hey, how about that ministry? Let me breathe on you for a moment. Uh, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must in this manner be killed. Nobody's going to stand before these witnesses. Who had that kind of ministry in the Old Testament? Well, Elijah, he gets to the, about the you know, second, third group that's going to go, go, go arrest him. He's like, I, think, I don't want to go. No. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. These are Elijah-type miracles. The mere, his ministry in the Old Testament. The second two types of miraculous judgments involve turning water into blood and striking the earth with a variety of plagues. Well, well, who's this indicative of? Well, that's Moses. That's Moses in the Old Testament in relationship to the plagues that were brought on Egypt. Notice what it says here. These have power to shut heaven so no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. And Who did that besides Moses? That, that's Moses' territory. And to strike the earth with all plagues. Who's the guy who brings plagues on the earth? Well, it's God, but it's through Moses. In terms of miracles of judgment, Moses and Elijah are unique in the Old Testament. And unique to what is described here in Revelation chapter 11, which is indicative of their ministries in the Old Testament. My conclusion is that these two witnesses are most likely Moses and Elijah. And they will be effective. In the Old Testament, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, saying, the God who answers by fire, he is God. The prophets of Baal had no answer. But then Elijah prayed. Wow, love this. Elijah prayed, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned, you have turned their hearts back to you again. How did God use Elijah to turn the hearts? Well, we have a little fire falling from heaven. That'll do it. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. He prayed, Turn the hearts back to you. And God did it. When the fire fell, the people came to repentance. And so it will be. In the latter days, when the fire begins to fall through, Elijah's resumed ministry, and the people will come to repentance on a national level in Israel. Indeed, Elijah will be used of God to bring about the restoration of all things. As a footnote, these miracles at the hands of Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, which will continue on in the coming tribulation period, are the greatest miracles in the history of the world performed at the hands of people. I see what you're thinking, and it needs to be qualified, doesn't it? Because you and I know Christ did the greatest of miracles of all and has no peer. But here's the qualifier. Christ's miracles were all benevolent. Benevolent. 
They were not miracles of judgment. No, it wasn't time for that. But now Elijah and Moses, as I see it, will minister in the context of the day of the Lord, which is the time of judgment. And their miracles will be unique in terms of judgment. Of course, God is behind all miracles. But done through the hands of people, these two witnesses will be unique. They were unique in the Old Testament and will resume in the, in the New Testament, in the tribulation period. And they will be used of God to bring about the process of restoration in Israel. At the time of the rapture, you understand, absolutely every believer on planet earth will be removed. No exceptions. No one will be left behind. Wouldn't it be great if it happened during church? Man, you'd have, especially in a message like this, you, you might want to get on your knees right after we're gone. There won't be a single believer left here. Not a single one. And it will be a context of total and absolute apostasy and unbelief. But God never leaves himself without a witness on earth. That's the consistent pattern. Suddenly two witnesses will appear in Jerusalem and begin to be a powerful witness for the Lord. Dr. John C. Whitcomb writes, Therefore, there will be no one to train these two witnesses and no time to train them. They must be men already possessing full knowledge of the Scriptures and well-seasoned for such a demanding ministry. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah was the law enforcer. Both will be men of experience. They will be perfectly equipped for a ministry to Israel before a worldwide audience. The Old Testament required two witnesses as a legal testimony involving anything of great significance. These two witnesses, with their profound background, will be a very powerful confirmation of prophetic truth and will be used of God to bring about revival in Israel and a powerful testimony to the entire world. And they will be, for three and a half years, unstoppable. Wow! You go talk to them. Oh, no, the last guy got snuffed. I'm not going. You go. No, no, I'm watching from a distance here, okay? They're unstoppable. For three and a half years. The first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then the one... Nobody could stop these guys. All of a sudden, the Antichrist steps forward and kills them. You know what he says? Nobody else could do anything with these guys, but I can. I'm God, you see. Nobody's greater than me. They're gone. I killed them. He's going to take total credit for this. But here's the point. This restoration will begin to happen early in the tribulation period, although it will involve a process. And so effective will Moses and Elijah be that by the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist goes in and commits the abomination of desolation, declaring himself to be God, Jesus then instructs those people who have become believers to flee at that time. And they will to their safe place. My point is, they will have become believers in Jesus Christ. There will be, by the time of the middle of the tribulation, there will be a great movement in Israel to that, to, to that point. Isaiah 66, 8. 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, tribulation period, very early, she gave birth to her children. Okay, that's Elijah. Coming ministry. Tribulation period. What about John the Baptist for crying out loud? Well, thank you for asking. Verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Now, this is where an inductive, all-inclusive study of the Scriptures comes in. And where it is necessary to rightly divide the Word. Notice what we have here. We have, Elijah is coming, future, verse 11. Elijah has come already, past. Which is it? How can both be true? On the surface, this may sound like a contradiction, but it is not. When you put all the scriptures together, it makes sense. Verse 13 makes it very clear that in verse 12... Jesus is understood to be talking about John the Baptist. Verse 13 reads, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. How can it be that John plainly said, unequivocally, that he is not Elijah in John 1.21, and yet Jesus, both in Matthew 11.14, and here again in Matthew 17.12 and 13, indicated that John the Baptist was Elijah. In John 1, John the Baptist said he was not Elijah, but rather was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. In fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And again, in Luke 1, 17, Zacharias was told that John the Baptist would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So here's the bottom line. John was not Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah. That's the point. Keep Isaiah 40, verse 3, distinct from Malachi 4, 5. Isaiah 40, verse 3, this is what John the Baptist said he's fulfilling. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way, calling the people to repentance. Malachi, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is John the Baptist. This is Elijah. This is a type of Elijah. This is the actual Elijah. When you put it all together... There are two comings with two forerunners. John went before the Lord, calling the people to repentance. They did not repent. And as a nation, they therefore were not restored. But one day, Elijah will come. He will come back on the scene prior to the second coming, and he will be successful. He will see the great restoration of God's people. Then there will be a great turning to God in Israel, which will be reflected in the families of Israel. John the Baptist did two things. Number one, he called the people to repentance in preparation to receive the Lord, who came offering the kingdom on the condition of repentance. Number two, John then introduced Jesus to Israel, saying it was on him they should believe. Paul summarized his ministry in this way. In Acts 19.4, Paul said, John, speaking of John the Baptist, indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, signifying repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. 
Jesus said the Jews for a time rejoiced in John's light, but in the end they said he had a demon. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus indicated that the people, had the people responded with repentance, John would have fulfilled the Elijah prophecies of being the forerunner. The kingdom offer, you see, was legit. But alas, the people rejected John, the forerunner. And they rejected the Christ that he prepared the way for. And of course, God sovereignly knew what was going to happen before anything ever happens. He knew what was going, they were going to do. But here's the point. So goes the forerunner with Israel, so goes the Christ. At his first coming, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but the nation's leaders rejected him. And so they would do with the Son of Man, which they did. But prior to the second coming, Elijah himself will come on the scene as the forerunner. And this time, this time, Israel will accept the forerunner's testimony. And there will be a great turning to God in Israel. And at his second coming, Israel will receive Jesus, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus, Elijah's ministry will be the trigger for the restoration of all things. So now we know, now we know, there are two comings for the Messiah. And there are two forerunners. The first was a type of Elijah in the form of John the Baptist, fulfilling Isaiah 40, verse 3. But did not see widespread repentance and therefore did not see restoration. The second will be the actual Elijah fulfilling Malachi 4, 5, and 6 and will bring about true repentance and restoration. Some application this morning. You say, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, more than you might realize. You see, both Moses and Elijah ministered in deep, dark days of apostasy during the course of their earthly ministries. We live in the church age, a parenthesis age. God has temporarily set Israel aside. Now he's doing a thing called the church, building a forever family called the church. All believers in Christ, Jew or Gentile. The church began suddenly and signlessly, and it will end the same way. Christ could come at any time for the church. We are to live ready. There are no defining signs for the church age, although we do see trends. And the key sign, or trend if you will, is, is that we are getting closer to the end, is the growing apostasy. This is the defining mark of the last days of the church age, as revealed by Paul in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. In the last days, perilous times of apostasy will come to the church and professing Christians, I'm talking professing Christians, will no longer endure sound doctrine. We, my friends, are there in a big way. Right now, the alarm is being sounded all over the conservative world of Christianity about what is called progressive Christianity. I love, I don't love. It's, it's interesting how the devil uses words, turns it around. Progressive Christianity is the, is the most opposite thing from progressive that you can imagine. We should call it digressive non-Christianity. In truth, it is not genuine Christianity at all, but it claims to be. It's the stuff right out of 2 Timothy 
3 and 4. Erwin Lutzer says, Progressive Christians do not reject Bible authority outright. Oh, no, they're more subtle. Rather, they purport to walk a middle path with the Bible in one hand and cultural sensitivity in the other. There's the line. To put it clearly, Lutzer says, progressive Christianity interprets the Bible through the lens of culture. It does not critique the culture through the lens of the Bible. That, my friends, is exactly backwards. That, my friends, is a very satanic strategy. And the result is deep, dark apostasy that no longer thinks straight and no longer endures sound doctrine. We take our cues for what's morally right from the world now. And Christians get on board. It's in the context of darkening apostasy that Christ will remove the true church out of the world. And the false church, which is a very large church, will become the bride of the Antichrist in effect. Make no mistake about who Christ is removing and what defines the true church. We don't have to wonder about it because we have this statement from Christ, from God in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Christ says, because you have kept my command to persevere. These are persevering Christians, which is real Christians. Because you have kept my command to persevere. I didn't say it. Jesus is saying it. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because you are those who have kept my command to persevere. You have proven to be genuine. You haven't apostatized. Those who completely apostatized were never true Christians. The true church does not apostatize, not completely. Yeah, we can fall into sin. Yeah, we can fall into heresy. That's why we have all the warnings. But we will not completely abandon the truth of Christ. But as the true church is taken out of the world, all that remains is a world of total unbelief and a world of total apostasy. The false church will now be in union with Antichrist and Israel will sign a firm seven-year covenant with Antichrist, which is called, are you ready for this? A covenant with death in Isaiah 28, 15. It is into this context of apostasy that Elijah, the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, as I believe, will step onto the stage of history. And they, in that context of total apostasy, will be unbelievably successful. From their witness will come 144,000 Jews who will serve to evangelize the entire world, eventuating in an innumerable number of souls in heaven as seen in Revelation 7. You talk about fruit. They're going to be fruitful, man. But here's the point. Just as sure as all the prophecies related to Christ's first coming, have literally been fulfilled. So will yet also all the prophecies related to his second coming yet literally be fulfilled. The first assures the second. Just as sure as John the Baptist fulfilled his Elijah-like role as the forerunner, so also will the actual Elijah yet fulfill his God-ordained forerunner role prior to the second coming. Spurgeon said this, 
From every text in the Bible, there's a road to Jesus Christ. Historically, the road to Jesus comes through the prophesied forerunner. And we see that just as there are two comings, there are two forerunners. The way to the kingdom is through the testimony of the forerunners. They are key witnesses. Listen to the testimony of John the Baptist, who testified of Jesus, saying, This is the Son of God. John 1.34 And who said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 We not only have the testimony of the forerunner, we have the full collective testimony of Scripture. And the issue becomes, what will we do with their witness? John 1, 11 and 12 came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you received him? Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Receive him by faith today, and you too will become a child of God. Let's stand and have our closing song.